Welcome to Deep Color, the oral history project and podcast series that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. Each recording is casual, long-form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Please help sustain this project by becoming an official patron through the support page at deepcolorpodcast.com. There are very reasonable donation tiers for supporters to choose from and feel good about. In doing this, you acknowledge the time and labor that goes into creating Deep Color and appreciate its value. You can also help by sharing Deep Color within your community and by rating and reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for helping to make these conversations about art and the creative process possible. This episode profiles Phil Sanders. Phil is a master printer, educator, author, and artist, and is the founder and director of P.S. Marlowe, a fine art publisher and creative services consultancy based in Asheville, North Carolina. Phil has also worked as director and master printer at Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop and Universal Limited Arts Editions, where he collaborated with celebrated artists like Elizabeth Murray, Jasper Johns, Helen Frankenthaler, and Chakaya Booker, among many others. His approach to printmaking revolves around his fastidious technical expertise and patience, combined with a keen ability for understanding the vision and goals of the artists he works with. Phil's new book titled Prints and Their Makers features wonderfully written summaries on the tradition and history of printmaking and takes readers behind the scenes to witness the creative process at the world's top printmaking workshops. The book also includes excellent overviews on different printing methods, a range of artist profiles, and beautiful full-color reproductions and photos that allow viewers to appreciate the intricacies of the imagery and see what the printing process actually looks like. Prince and Their Makers is published by Princeton Architectural Press, an imprint of Chronicle, and is now available for purchase online and in your local bookshop. This conversation was recorded remotely. I was in Brooklyn, New York, which is the unceded land of the Lenape people. Phil was in Asheville, North Carolina, which is the unceded land of the Cherokee people. Down my face in this 90 degree studio I'm sitting in. Um, when I think about printmaking, um, I think about Durr. And I think about his incredible technical capacity and his incredible drawing ability. Um, what is it about Durr that printmakers refer to as kind of uh, um, a bit of a standard from your point of view? Is it just that technical capacity? For me, I mean, I think one of the things that has captivated audiences for so long about Durr is that he's taking his process to such a high level of detail and quality of craft that it's undeniable from a technical production standpoint. And so from a printmaker's or printer's perspective, the people who are actually actively making plates and carving blocks, that level of dedication is a bar to hit towards. And I think one of the things that makes that so 
impressive as well as the time that it was done. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking, you know, around 1500, late 1400s, early 1500s. In Germany. At, in Germany at a time when materials were difficult to come by, access was difficult. And he was a very young man when he got started with this stuff. You know, he was about 19 when he really got started in printmaking. And his first work out of the gate was an over-the-top demonstration of not just his ideas, but his dedication to the medium. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what was being made at the time when he came out with his first prints, it's night and day as far as the level of detail and quality and approach. So he was innovative from a technical perspective as well as an artistic perspective. I mean, he was depicting religious themes using... Um, the clothing, the garb, the backdrop of his own time period, which in and of that time, pre uh, Martin Luther, that was actually a radical and revolutionary activity. And so I think for a lot of artists, they see this as an individual who's dedicated to their own ideas, is interested in their voice, their voice having value, and is interested in doing something of such extraordinary quality that it becomes it became a bar to shoot for in his day, and it has remained so to this day. Yeah, so such a dynamo, um, especially with woodcuts. I think about his woodcuts quite a bit. Another thing I learned about uh, Durer is that, uh, and I learned this through a, a BBC podcast called In Our Time, um, that just was like a historical um, portrait of, of, of Durer, uh, that he was frustrated with the, the economic system around arts in his time. And he looked to printmaking as a way to kind of uh, develop his own revenue stream and this idea of like the self-starting artist. Uh, I didn't know that about him, but does that track with what you knew, what you know about Durr? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it credit should actually be given to his wife. She was the one uh, who managed his, his career. He had a dealer early on and that, that's where that frustration comes in. And, and he was failing him. He was stealing money from him. He was not reporting things and his wife came in and managed it. And together they worked as a, as a creative team, so thinking about what prints at what sizes and what processes could be printed to what numbers for which audiences and, and creating a pricing structure relative to media and image, right? So they really approached it as a team and she really helped garner the larger commissions and she's largely been written out of a lot of the story. You got to really dig deep to find that information about her. You know, she came from a more aristocratic background. He was more like Kate Middleton, middle class background, mm. you know, from a, a guild's family. And so when their powers were combined, they were extraordinarily successful. She's the one who came up with the idea of at all the pilgrimage sites going down, you know, towards, you know, for pilgrimage to Rome, uh, that you put all the images of the future sites at the at each stop. So if you could only afford to get to one, you could buy images as if you made it to all of them. So think of it like postcards for a road trip across the United States, but you could only make it from, you know, you can only get a third of the way across and you get all the postcards from California and all that. Right. So she came up with that concept, which from a financial perspective was genius. But so they were working around the art world system, kind of creating their own at that time. So, yeah, that was, you know, problems have always been the same problems when it comes to I was about to say, it's oddly refreshing to hear. Um that the challenges back then in the Renaissance, the German Renaissance are, are kind of unchanged from now. Um, that's refreshing, but also incredibly disappointing that <laughs> we haven't figured it out yet. You know, we're here to talk about your, 
your fantastic new book that you just released called Prince and Their Makers, but I want to level set first and talk about who you are. Um, you're a master printer. You're an artist. You're an educator. Uh, you're sometimes a curator and you're also a parent. And full disclosure, I've known you for a number of years and we've collaborated on prints together. We've worked together professionally um, and we've become friends through that process. Um, and when I was invited to work with you by a publisher called Fourth Estate, uh, it was explained to me like, Joe, you've got an opportunity to work with this master printer named Phil Sanders. And I said, oh, great. What the fuck is a master printer? Uh, so I thought we could start there. Uh, can you tell the listener what a master printer is and then also how one becomes a master printer? Sure. I mean, I guess I'll back it out just a little bit so that people have a understanding about print in general so they understand the hats that have to be worn. So a fine art print is made through printmaking processes that you may be really familiar with, like things like screen print that print your T-shirts lithography that prints the books you read, intaglio processes that print the money we use. So printmaking in and of itself is an industrial art as well as a creative art. And all of those more industrial processes have been taken on by artists to produce unique and limited edition works of art. And for any print to make it into the world for you to be able to see or to buy, there's three roles that really have to be satisfied. There's the artist or the author, right? So if you're thinking like in terms of a book, there's the printer, the person who's physically printing that. And then there's a publisher, the person who's paying for it and figuring out how it actually gets into the world. It's marketing plan, it's distribution plan, all those kinds of things. So those are three hats that have to be worn. Now, all three of those hats can be worn by the same person. They can be worn by two people, or they can be worn by three people, or even more. There can be multiple people involved as publishers. There can be groups of artists working together and groups of printers. So when you think about it, uh, it's what I'm describing is this more collaborative nature or collaborative effort in order to bring an idea from one artist's mind into something physical into the world that we can all experience. And so in the middle there is the printer position. And printers are generally understood as being highly technically skilled in the media of print, whether that be intaglio or etching, relief printing like woodcuts or lithography or screen print. And sometimes they're versed in all of those processes, or maybe two of them. And technical mastery essentially means that they're capable of producing work to the highest quality standard level um, over and over. So that any two prints that are made or any 10 prints that are made, the average human being and even the average printer could not tell the difference between those impressions. So there's a standard of quality that comes with printers. And our job is essentially to help facilitate our, our artists' ideas that we're working with um, to get them into reality. Because as a collaborating printer, and there's differences between types of printers and things like that, but as a collaborating printer, which is what I am, my job is to work with an artist to help them realize their own artistic vision through a print media that they may or may not have any experience with printmaking prior. Right? Maybe they did a class in college or they did a potato print when they were a kid. Um, that's about the extent. So your job as a collaborating printer is to help them learn the language of print and realize their vision through the media. So sometimes a collaborating printer um, is leaned very heavily on and sometimes a little bit less. And so that relationship kind of goes back and forth just a little bit. Um, as far as like what makes you a master printer, this is a question I get asked a ton and there's no really great answer. It's not like we have a system of 
like knighting someone or a test you pass or there's no like ceremony that. where you're given like a black belt and a gi, a printing gi. No. Okay. No, there's nothing like that. We don't even get a bottle of scotch. <laughs> so what happens is, is you begin printing and generally you work with or alongside someone who's been printing for a long time. So it's considered a modern form apprenticeship to learn, to learn the craft, not just from a technical perspective, but from a collaborative perspective, because there's a lot of ways of learning how to work with another person to help realize their vision versus your own, how to check your own personal artistic goals at the door, because that's not, you're not making your own art. And so when we think about that collaborative role and a printing role, one of my favorite uh, answers to this question actually came from Bob Blackburn. He's a storied um, African-American master printer, uh, creator of the famed printmaking workshop, one of the greatest collaborating master printers the last 100, 150 years. He got asked that question a lot too. And he always would respond, if a master level artist will refer to you as their master printer in public, you can think about using the title. Okay. <laughs> and I was always like, that's a really great definition. And, you know, because it's like, well, when would you do it? And, you know, my personal definition of it is when you realize that you can never know enough, and that's a joyful position, something that you are excited by versus a depressing position, right? So you've, you've attained enough mastery to make that step beyond. That's well said. I know you've worked in a number of different print shops uh, with the title Master Printer. Um, this includes the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop, which you are also tasked with, with uh, re-energizing and re-updating uh, in the early 2000s. Is that accurate when you when you got into that role you also worked at universal limited art editions or ulae which is also in new york um, but these these shops take on uh, contract gigs meaning artists or public publishers would uh, would would approach you to realize a print and i wondered if there were a story or uh, an experience working with a big time artist um or something that you learned from working with a big time artist, like a big name artist that uh, is in the history books that you could share with us. Um, sure. I mean, as a printer, uh, I've printed, I started my printing career in Florida. I went to the Tamron Institute of Photography in New Mexico. I was then in San Francisco working for Trillium Graphics and teaching at Stanford and things like that. And then ULE to Blackburns and on and on to other places. And so for me, one of the most formative things was working on a project with Wayne Tebow at Trillium Graphics in San Francisco. So it was early on in my print career. This is back in, I said this was 2001 is when he and I worked on this suite of lithographs. And I wasn't the only printer involved um, in that project. But what one of the things that people always ask about us as printers is they say, you guys do so much work. What do you really get out of it? And what we really get out of it is the perspective of the artist's viewpoint, like how they see the world and then what becomes important with how they use their artistic voice to communicate through their work. And for Wayne, I learned more about color on those two lithographs than I have and the use of color and the function of color, not just for making an image work, but how it moves an individual how it sets a tone and how it creates, it leaves that presence of the artist in the work. And he being such a color master, it was one of the most engaging and rewarding experiences for me was to understand how he saw the world through color and to be able to give that to him. So he would look at a proof and 
we'd be talking about making adjustments to things and like, oh, this yellow, maybe we could adjust the quality of this yellow just slightly. And we'd be talking about these big swaths and things that are pretty standard. And then he would say, so you see this edge, and it'd be something that's maybe the thickness of two human hairs. And there's a tiny bit of orange that's peeking out. He's like, we need to bump up the intensity of that edge. And I would ask him why. And he would go into nothing formalist from a formalist design perspective, which you might think he might do, like this thing, how you organize a picture plane. And he went into everything about what it was going to do for you emotionally when you saw the work and how he wanted you to feel. And it was from working with him that I developed the two questions that I always ask artists when we're trying to figure something out, which is, what do you want it to do and how do you want it to feel? Because those are really the important questions to ask, to get it right. And that's when I learned that from him working on those projects. I still, there isn't a, a day that goes by that I don't look at color through Wayne Tebow's lens. So we, it's, a, it's a really wonderful thing that happens with that. Yeah, what a gift to, to you know, be close to someone who has those ideas and viewpoints and, and is willing to share them with the people around them. Um, maybe that's one of the beauties of being a collaborative printer or being in these collaborative environments with, with other printmakers and artists. You know, you and I have talked about this idea before, but I, I think it's often gets lost in the shovel or, or it's an idea that's overlooked. And, and it's this idea that prints are themselves original works of art. And I think that gets lost because most people think of prints as this set or this, this group of multiples or this idea of an addition. There's more than one. Can you get a little granular on why we should be considering a print as an original work of art as opposed to this like product, multiple product thing on a shelf? Sure. I mean, I, I think so much of the confusion comes that most people's daily experience to print is a reproduction or what we refer to as a recreation of the world that exists. You've got this thing and you're going to make it exactly as it is in multiple or in mass, right? We think of product packaging, posters, all that stuff. And so the business cards, business cards, the intention of that work is reproductive, right? And there was a long tradition in the commercial art world of reproducing artwork in print so that people could see that work because of the difficulty of getting to see this work in person. So we have this kind of ingrained cultural idea of print as reproduction based on our experience. But an artist has the opportunity to come into the process to create a world versus recreate a world. And that's really where this difference comes in, is that an artist is using the media of print to execute a work just as they would execute a painting or a sculpture. The difference is, is that the process allows for it to be in multiple. So you have a choice as an artist. You could do a lithograph that's 25 colors and only make one. But because of the process of you, the tools that you use to make it, you have the opportunity to addition it. And so that's why there are original works of art in multiple. So it's a original work that just has the capability to be in multiple. And that's, so I understand why people get confused, but basically when, you, when you're working on a print as an artist, you're not coming in with your watercolor under your arm and saying, let's make 25 of this. You're walking into a studio with a vexing problem that you've been trying to figure out how you can make this idea um, into something physical and tangible. And then you begin to talk with your collaborating printers and you come up with a way to start from the idea to create something brand new. And, and that's really what we go for, for fine art prints. That's a great summary. All right, let's get into the book, Prints and Their Makers. 
you graciously sent me one, so I've been able to spend some time with it. Um, and this is a proper book. It's heavy. I almost want to, can I do a little illustration? Maybe the, the audio will pick this up. Sure. I mean, that's a heavy book. I just dropped it on my table. It's, it's like it, it feels and operates like an art book to me. Um, it's something that should be out uh, and looked at. It, there's, there's tons of reproductions in it and, and photographs. But why don't we start out by sort of describing what the book is about and who it's for and maybe what you want readers to gain from it. Sure. I mean, when I was approached by Princeton Architectural Press, the publisher, to do this book on printmaking, um, they really were wanting something that could reach an audience that loves art but may know nothing about prints, as well as servicing the audience of people who are very dedicated to prints and love them and know lots about it. So they wanted... They wanted this text that could hit the widest audience possible. And, and for me, someone who's you know, a lover of prints and spent a lot of time promoting print as something that people should get into and think about supporting artists who work in the media, it was a really good opportunity to treat it as education through storytelling, both visual and text. Right? So for me, I've always known that you know, anytime I can get someone inside the print shop and I can show them how something is made, I can tell them the stories of why the artist is doing it and how their thought process evolved. And I can show them those bits and pieces and the drawings and the plates and all that kind of stuff that goes into making it. They always walk away being a permanent lifelong lover of prints. And so my goal with the book was to get people press side, to get that feeling like you got to walk into a whole bunch of different print shops all over the world, meeting artists from different generations, wildly different perspectives and the way they see the world and the voices that they have. So that you'd, you'd find some kindred spirits that you resonate with through that process. You'd understand a little bit more about who we are today based on the print record from the past. Right? So you get involved with that. Uh, and an opportunity to update the art historical canon as it comes to prints to include more voices that have been left out for a wide variety of reasons. Yeah, it, it really does feel like a, like a great, almost academic overview of the history and tradition of printmaking. You did a great job sort of providing a overview of that history. Um, but it's, then it's combined with artist profiles, process, you know, like, like walkthroughs on how you made prints and even, uh, photographs of like a step-by-step process. So there's that educational component too, which is really nice. And then also, like I was saying at the front, it, it operates like an art book. You've got sections in the book that are just straight pictures of prints like you would look at in an art book so you can spend time just like getting lost in the actual image as opposed to like reading the text which is wonderfully written by the way it's not pretentious it's not hard to grasp it's like really absorbable i appreciate your and i hear your voice in it too right so it's really really nice to read and the other thing i really like about it is how you like how you organized it you broke it into technique you know you it goes from relief to intaglio uh, through photogravure, lithography, monotype, screen printing. You have all the different kind of printmaking categories in there. I mean, I'm leaving some out, but you kind of bullet point each one, which I thought is a nice way to illustrate each one, but also draw connections between the two and um, also point out the differences. All right. So for me, it was really important that if someone walked into a gallery or a museum and they saw a work of art on the wall, and they look at a card, the title card, and it says lithograph, that they, they would ha- this book would be a way of helping them understand what they're looking at on a different level. So it's once they get past the art first part that happens to be a print, 
that they can understand a little bit more about it. If you didn't like, I have no idea what a lithograph is. And so that was really important for me. And it was also really important that, that the work in and of itself be highlighted in such a way that you could see it. So when the publisher approached me about doing the book, the first thing I said is all images of contemporary work need to be full page reproductions. And they were like, why? And I was like, because people need to be able to see the work. I'm like, we're, I, if, I, if you guys don't want to do that, we can part ways. Because that was super important to me that you'd be able to actually see the work, right? Versus a book where you got like 12 images, like tiny on a page. Right, little thumbnail images, yeah. Right, and you just can't see anything. And it's almost like, what's the point of that? I wanted people to really be able to spend time with it visually, you know, because that's what we're talking about. And hope that those images push you towards wanting to learn more about it by reading Let's spend a little bit more time talking about Robert Blackburn and how he helped define collaborative printmaking and who he was as a person. Can you just give us a little arc about who he was? Sure. Bob Blackburn was one of the most important influential printers and artists of the last 100, 150 years. And the reason I can say that with, with such ease is that there are very few artists in New York City, especially artists of color who have not been connected to Bob in the printmaking workshop in some way, either directly or indirectly. He's the Kevin Bacon of the art world, essentially. Everyone connects back to Bob Blackburn at some point. And the reason was his absolute love and joy of the medium of print, and specifically lithography. He was a lithographer primarily, and he worked with virtually every artist you could possibly imagine. As a young man at 14 years old, he was working, uh, his first lithography experience and exposure was working with Reva Helfond, who was an instructor at the Harlem Community Arts Center. Um, other instructors at the time, there were people like Romare Bearden and Jacob Lawrence. And shortly thereafter, he started working as a studio assistant uh, to Jacob Lawrence at, at 14 years old. And he, he really dove headfirst into lithography. He quickly outpaced all of his instructors as far as technical prowess. So by the time he graduated from high school, he went to DeWitt Clinton High School, which is a famous art high school. With, you know, he, can, he was one of the editors of the Magpie, which is an amazing thing if somebody wants to go diving into that. Um, and he ended up with a scholarship to the Art Students League with Will Barnett. And that's really where the foundation of collaborative printing that we understand in so many ways was developed from an American, real American perspective. There was stuff going on in France, but it was a kind of a different way of working. And because it was all based on a 100% experimentation. So Will and Bob worked together. And, you know, at first Bob was a student, he was a young man, and very quickly became a peer and very quickly, you know, became a co-collaborator with Will. And as a result, a lot of artists wanted to work with, with Bob to have him work with them on making their prints because of his approach to the meeting was so creative and so different. He approached it like you would a painting, right? And so he really epitomized that concept of, well, we're making a work of art that we happen to be able to edition, right? So he, he would make a work that he would get it to a certain state. Ten years later, he'd pick up that image and he'd dive back into it and completely change it around again. And he really demonstrated that malleability of an artwork through the print process in a very clear way and worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of artists from all over the world. His workshop started in 1948 um, as, a, as a cooperative shop. And it was what was, really, it, what was it called back then? Sorry, to just even... just the printmaking workshop, right? And uh, I believe, if my memory serves me correct, it was on Seventeenth Street, and it was a fourth floor walk up, mm-hmm. litho stones going up the tiny stairs, really difficult. Bob lived in a part of that studio; it was like a loft space, 
and artists got keys to like common work. And it was mostly Afro-Caribbean diaspora, African-American artists and expatriated Jewish artists from Europe working in the studio at the time. These are all people who couldn't work in other print shops, right, due to racial uh, segregation. And so for Bob, he kind of created this oasis. And there was a real turning point for him when he had to decide, should he push his own artwork and be more of his own artist, or should he keep this thing that he's created going, right? And Bob's workshop became a model for the way in which nonprofit organizations would be defined once we had a different status designation that was updated in the early 70s. Um, his, his space was used as a model organization for defining how the NEA would work for supporting organizations. He was just really ahead of his time in saying, art matters. It doesn't matter who's making it. We're going to support all artists and all voices. And he, he fully dove into that. And, so, and provide opportunities, right? It's not like support. Yes, but providing opportunity, it's part of the support, but he had this shop that people could come into and he did workshops. There is teaching going on in this place. Uh, I mean, and that continue, training. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I learned about Blackburn was first his shop, but then I checked out his work and I was just blown away with how beautiful and powerful and dynamic it is. His use of shape and contour and color um, and composition, all the design in it. Um, and you mentioned earlier, he sort of, there was a point where he had to think about whether he's going to chase his own path as an artist or put more energy and time into the workshop and being a master printer. And I know that this is this is something that a lot of master printers or arts fabricators face. And I'm wondering how you as a master printer um, reconcile that sort of push and pull of realizing other, helping other artists realize their work versus your own work. I don't know if we, if I've ever reconciled it necessarily other than maybe compartmentalizing. So I, like my work is my work and the work I do for others is the work I do for others. So they're really separate boxes. Like they're never in conflict with each other. It's that's my goal. I mean, and I know that it can be hard for some people to maybe think is possible, but when I'm working with an artist, my entire job and focus is to support that artist's work. So if, if you were to say to me, what color do you think this should be, Phil? I'm going to be thinking about it in terms of what's good for your work, not what I like personally. And that's what, when you get back to that concept of mastery, I think that's part of that mastery is to be able to separate your own personal ideas and intentions from what would be good for your artist. And so I think that's something that Bob was extraordinarily good at and really helped set the stage for so many other printers to be able to use his example as, you know, the role model to follow. Right. That's great. You know, I want to acknowledge that we are two white men talking about a black man here with Robert Blackburn um, and that there's a built-in racial and power dynamic to this. Um, I also want to acknowledge that it's important for white people and white artists to talk with each other about racial tension and racism um, and anti-racism. And I don't think it's the responsibility of artists of color to bring white folks up to speed. I really believe in that. I think it's on us uh, to, to find the knowledge ourselves, update our own brains and operating systems, um, and challenge our own biases at every turn. So with this in mind, and, and if we can de define anti-racism as encompassing a range of ideas and um, political actions that are, that are meant to counter racial prejudice um, and systems of racism, um, can you talk about your work being anti-racist and, and how it weaves into your outlook and some of the, the ways that you think about art today? Sure. I mean, I mean, 
first and foremost is, is a recognition that the art world in and of itself has an extraordinarily high level of institutionalized racism and that cultural, white cultural artworks are used to help perpetuate a white supremacist cultural structure of the United States and Western Europe and many parts of the world. So to think that art somehow lives outside of that system is, is a fallacy that people just need to get over kind of right now. Um, it's been there forever, <laughs> you know, as long as, as long as uh, Europeans and white people have been making work, a lot of it's been about the glorification of whiteness, right? And that goes way back. So first and foremost, the acknowledgement of that, I think, is, is primary to, say, to state that. And, in, you know, for me, where I first had the opportunity to have any sort of contribution from an anti-racist perspective was when I took over the stewardship of Bob Blackburn's printmaking workshop. And it, for me, it was a difficult thing because here I am, a white guy from the South taking over a black man's print shop and running it. And as just as you said, you know, Bob, one of the things that Bob really did was provide lots of opportunities for artists and predominantly artists of color received the greatest benefit from that because they had the fewest opportunities in the city and still do. And for me, a big part of my beginning of that job was a listening tour of talking to people within the community, um, artists of color from you know, all persuasions, you know, and finding out what the workshop meant to them with Bob to ensure that the actions, the decisions, the way in which the workshop was going to operate and run did not in any way decrease opportunities for people, but increased opportunities and really made sure <clears throat> that everyone had a voice at the table as, as much as, as humanly possible. Right. So for me, there was a, an art dealer and gallerist, this amazing person, African-American woman, B.E. Noel, who I had a conversation with early on. And I was just talking to her about thoughts and ideas that she had maybe to help make sure I was reaching deep enough into the African-American community to where I could have the appropriate conversations with people to make, make sure people knew that my intention was to, for it to be Bob shop, right? Mm -hmm. That, and that was the way in which my time at that, my stewardship period of time with the workshop is that this is Bob Blackburn shop. I happen to be the steward of his work and his vision. And that's, that's the way I, when I left, that's the, that was the intention of it. And she said to me, you know, something that was really poignant and has always stuck with me and has been a guiding force for me. It was that, Phil, as a white man, you're going to be able to do more for Bob as a black man than he ever could have in his life because other white people will listen to you. And it's and that, goes, that goes right back to white supremacy. <laughs> exactly. And it, yeah. it's like, and, and so, and she just looked at me and I was like, I understand my obligation to, to do what I can to change that conversation, to get Bob in the appropriate context, to make sure that he's being spoken about for the work that he's done and the work that needs to be done not just on his behalf, but on behalf of all artists so that we're, we're chipping away at that, you know, white supremacist column of the one culture, you know, which culture gets, gets highlighted, you know, and it's, and I think, you know, why artists like Bob Blackburn work was not champions is an African-American man working in abstraction, which was the bastion of white intellectualism in the fifties. And so one of the reasons the library of Congress collected over 2,200 prints from the Printmaking Workshop's archive was because it represented the widest swath of artists of color working in abstraction in the early days of abstraction. And they were able to include that, which was a massive gap in our national archive. And so I'm forever indebted to Catherine Blood and everyone at the Library of Congress for making sure that that portion of Americans' visual history 
has, has been included in that. Right. And this is uh, something that you weaved into your book, too, this sort of recognition of or, or updating of some of the history. You want to talk about a little bit how you how you tried to bring some of these names and voices uh, into the foreground or at least put them into the arc, the the the, the line of printmaking and history of printmaking. Right. I mean, for me, being that the book was what it was, there was kind of a limited amount of space to include as wide a section of voices as possible. So it was important to me to, to update the canon, so to speak, wherever I could. Um, and for, first and foremost, right in the introduction of the book, I'm talking about Charles White and Robert Blackburn producing the image. It's, it's the portrait of John Brown. Um, Charles White, you know, had a, had a great show at the Museum of Modern Art, but there was a lot of really important things left out of the title cards on the wall, like the portrait of John Brown being really helping people understand this was made in 1948. Charles White only did images of two white people. That's John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. He was a, you know, a founder of black social realism. And one of the founders, along with Elizabeth Catlett and many other artists we could talk about for a long time. But they left Bob Blackburn's name off of the wall. So that lithograph never would have been printed by a white artist, by a white printer in 1948. Right. So the height of racial tension following the Second World War. And no one really knows how many impressions of that portrait were made, but people do know that it traveled all over the United States. It's the beauty of print. And here you have a black artist and a black printer producing a portrait of John Brown in 1948 to be set around a country. It's, it's an essentially, it's a, it's a call to arms. It's, it's the very beginnings of the civil, major portions of the movement, the civil rights movement. And, you know, Charles White contracted tuberculosis, you know, being conscripted into the army for the Second World War. So it meant, it meant a great deal for me to be able to put that front and center right at the beginning of the book. Yeah, yeah, it's well done. And, and, and I mean, you've, you've, you're featuring a lot of artists from a range of different lived experiences in the book, too. So I think it's, it's a nice portrait of the, the printmaking community, right, and its vastness. I thought we could talk about one of my favorite artists in the book, Chikaya Booker. And I thought it would be fun to talk about her because she's primarily known as a sculptor working in three dimensions, yet she has this incredible printmaking practice um, and history making prints with you and, and how she translates her, her vision and her ideas as an artist and as a sculptor into two-dimensional work. Uh, can you tell listeners a little bit about Chikaya Booker's practice and, and what it's like to work with her? Sure. Um, Chikai Booker, as you said, is a sculptor. She's predominantly known for working with rubber tires as her medium, working as rubber as a medium. So she'll take tires and cut them up and reconfigure them in a modular sort of format into these sculptures that are generally quite massive. Um, the first time she really exploded on the scene was in the 2000 Whitney Biennial, and it was a piece that she built in the museum. It's massive. It's like 45 feet long and 20 feet tall. She used the so, museum as a studio. Exactly. Yeah. And she's one of the few artists who've ever done that. And that particular piece, you know, put her on the map in a real, in a big way. And it was at that time that I was first exposed to her work and sculpture. And I, I was at a Basel, Miami, I think it was the first or second iteration of that. And the only thing I remember from that entire show was Chikai's work. There was a series of sculptures um, that were with the gallery she was at with at the time. And I walked away with that never forgetting it. And so when I had the opportunity to work with her through a mutual friend, for me, everybody who was asking her to do prints at the time was wanting her to essentially make impressions off of rubber tires, like to do something that really related to the tires. 
And so I had this idea. An easy math equation, basically. An easy math equation. Like, oh, she makes stars. It's like Prince from Tars. I'm just like, that's just not very interesting. And so when she and I got together, I was at her studio and I said, I have this idea for your work. And she goes, I have an idea for my work. And I said, well, you first. And she's like, you're a guest in my house. You're first. And I said, well, I want to make something flat. And she goes, that's what I want to do. And that's really what set us off. And it was because... I, when I looked at Chikai's work, what I saw was someone who drew in three dimensions. So every angle you look, is like the most graceful, almost ink wash drawing, right? Because she, you know, predominantly black is the, is the main color of the work, uh, the tires that she works with. So every time you kind of start to move around that sculpture, it's like a different drawing, right? The, the front will never inform what the back's going to look like. It's, it's a constantly changing thing. And she really talks about the movement and the flow within her work. And so for me, it was about trying to help her capture that sort of experience in print right so neither one of us knew what, what we were going to do we, we experimented for about six months she hated everything we made <laughs> it was just like i don't like that i don't like that and finally what it boiled down to was i was just like well, what is missing or what's the thing that's the hiccup here and she said i don't like that when i make a mark on this wood block that's where it has to stay she's like i need to be able to i need to be able to free the mark from that spot from that location from that context I need to be able to find the parts I appreciate. And so that's where how we ended up with the process of doing Shin Koei monoprints was we would take these blocks, print them on lots of pieces of paper. She would then cut those marks out that she wanted and recompose them. And we use the press as a means of pulling those pieces of paper together to make a new work. And that opened the floodgates. And once we'd made the very first one, she's been a lifelong lover of prints. And, you know, I still do some with her from time to time, but her primary collaborator now is Justin Sands, who's the master printer and studio manager at the Robert Blackmore Printmaking Workshop. Currently now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think maybe that's why I identify with her work is this, this idea of chincole, which is a form of collage and printmaking, really kind of isolating the marks that you like, cutting them up and moving them around into places where they weren't initially supposed to be, but work better where they land. Uh, and that's something I breathe into my studio practice almost every day. So um, there's some sympathica there. And um, that you can repeat yeah. a mark. Right? Yeah. So she likes one mark. She can have 20 of that mark. Yeah. To yeah, use, yeah. Right. So, and you could never draw that. And I think that's why when people say, well, what's, what's the point of print? Well, it's to do things that you can't do in another medium. You could never make that mark exactly the same 20 times, but you can carve a wood block and we can print it exactly the same right right there's a great spread in the book um a process photo spread of her working with justin uh and i'm looking at it now there's there and it's just really cool to see her hands in there moving these pieces around um they you know there's moments where the her i mean it's the photograph but her body and her fingers and her hands become gestures (laughs) over the print themselves there's like a little conversation there between the shape of her hands it's really great I wondered if you'd get a little goofball with me. Something that I do in this project sometimes is is like a multiple choice section. <laughs> and I haven't done it in a while, but I wanted to do it with you. So I'm going to ask you some, some questions around the terminology of printmaking. Um, but if if we could imagine if, if we had to change that terminology. So these are what the multiple choice questions are designed around. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's see what happens. All right. Let's, so number one, a screen printing squeegee. Squeegee, I will argue, is almost a perfect word, but let's imagine we had to rename that tool. Um, If you had to change it to one of the following, what would you choose? A, an ink machete. 
be a screen scraper or C, a destroyer of fascists. And I say that because of like, I've seen uh, pictures of people's presses that says this press destroys fascists. So I'm just kind of playing off of that. Well, as appealing as Ink Machete is, (laughs) (laughs) I think Destroyer of Fascists is really great because this squeegee is is a tool that anyone, anyone, anywhere can make a screen print just about. And you can make t-shirts, you can make posters, you can make flyers. And it is such an easy way to make a print and to get an idea in the world that it has, it definitely has that ability to destroy yeah, just, it can also create it. You got to watch out. Well said. Okay. The next one, uh, the term reg as in registration, it's abbreviated. Right. And I've always, when I've heard that in the print shop, I think I learned it with you. Um, I, I thought of a person named reg or, you know, a nickname Reggie Reginald. Um, so if we, we had to rename it, uh, what name would you choose? A. Gretchen, B, Alita, or or C, Larry. So I'm gonna have to go with Gretchen. <laughs> there's no there's no right or wrong one there. It's Gretchen, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a good guitar. Yeah. It's one of the first ones I played, so I'll go with it. Alita is the name of my mother-in-law. That's why that was on there. <laughs> uh, okay, the last one, Spitbite. I mean, that's got a nice ring and flow to it, right? Um, almost doesn't need to be changed, but we're going to play with changing it. If we had to change spit bite, what would you choose? A, booger acid. B, copper eating saliva or CES. Or C, Larry's mouthwash. Imagining if you imagining if you named uh, <laughs> um, registration Larry. <laughs> exactly. I was going to go with uh, with CES because in print terminology we are generally the most boringly descriptive of the exact thing, like anti skin spray, or like we generally are not very creative. So that seems like it could actually work, and we abbreviate all this stuff. So. Larry's mouthwash would be LMW. LMW. Yeah. Let's talk about being a father. You're you're a father of two kids. And I think it's important for artists that are also fathers to talk about the experience of fatherhood in the face of the creative and artistic pursuit and how it affects that pursuit. Um, when I sort of frame it like that, um, what has it been like to have two kids and maintain, um, being a creative artistic person or try to maintain, maybe I should say. I I mean, I think, Children on one level help bring up create a lot of creativity with their kind of constant state of wonder because the world is so new um, and you're really focused on trying to help them have experiences that bolster their own creative problem solving skills that help them stay engaged with the world that really help build their own confidence. And so my two daughters, they're six and 17 months. So kiddo number two was born two weeks before the state of North Carolina shut down with the pandemic. Um, so we were really, you know, blindsided by a lot of that. And I think for us as a family, you know, fatherhood means a lot of things, you know, a big part of it is being able to help as much as a dad can when children are really young, there's an undue burden placed on moms. Um, so much of it is biologically necessary. Um, 
but a lot of it is societal. So a big part of it is just trying to release as much of that pressure valve as a dad um, as you can, but at the same time, not create separations or walls, right? I, I don't want my children separated from the work that I do and the life that we live. I think it's really important that they're involved in, in the world in, in a real way. And so, you know, my oldest, she, you know, she's in the print studio from time to time. Um, she had a big influence on images that were selected for the book sometimes. <laughs> you know, there's a couple extra horse images there just for her. <laughs> you know, and so it, it was, it's really, you know, for me, it's it's hard. You have to learn to break up your work day. You know, I work from home and, you know, so you, you work in blocks around naps and, you know, different things. You work late at night and, you know, you, you just figure out the way in which, you can still be productive while also still being super present. And because that's something that's really important for Sarah, you know, um, my wife and I, that we are as present as humanly possible for our children, but also at the same time, helping them be clear about expressing their, their own needs and the way in which they see the world and not trying to influence that too much, allow them to really be able to be creative people. It's, it's a tough job for anyone. And I think more people should, you know, talk about it. Yeah, agreed. I think it's a it's a beautiful thing to to show small children what it looks like to make stuff, to be present around artists that are being creative and using their hands and 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 you know, taking some of that mystery away from the process of making a work of art, being around that and or just the life of an artist um, and, and how it's sort of counter to a status quo in some sort is like a really valuable thing for a young person to witness as they're growing up. So it sounds like you're on it. And I also will, will say that it's an ongoing work in progress, right? Parenting <laughs> okay, yeah. and um, being an artist. So I, I just want to say that out loud. Well, and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm doing any of it well. No, <laughs> I'm no. just like, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, every artist or arts world person I know with children it's, it's another degree of difficulty. I sometimes refer to, you know, being an artist or involved in the arts as an affliction. It's something you, you, you have, you can't turn it off. It'd be so much easier to just be an accountant or something. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we don't know another way. We don't know another way. And, and, you know, so when you have children in that mix, it's about, you know, so much about art is, is quasi narcissistic. It's your voice, your vision in the world. And you really have to be extra focused to, ensure that your children have that voice. I mean, as a father of two daughters, I'm like hyper aware of trying to make sure that their world doesn't put up the same roadblocks and barriers that are put up to their mom. Yeah. Like I have like whatever I can do in that, even if it's just as much as like what the home life and environment is. Yeah. So, um, I know you've talked about art and printmaking are as vital to a healthy democracy. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that concept. Well, I mean, from a printmaking perspective, one of the things I love about that is that it's a physical record of who we are, right? That we are leaving for future generations to understand better who they are because they know who we were. And that's with all the pluses and minuses. That's, you know, we can look back now and we can see every, all the voices we've excluded from culture. And we learn a lot about who we are today by who we were based on that printed record, right? So print in and of itself and art as a democratizing element, it's prints in and of themselves elevate a single voice above many, right? Because of that nature of the multiple. And the more voices we allow to be elevated, 
the more rich and informed a democracy can be. I mean, a democracy only works with an informed electorate. And we need our artists and our purveyors of culture to really cast that net as wide and as far as possible to redefine that definition of culture as not being white culture, but to being what all these different cultures that mix together here in the United States in particular, what all those different cultures are and how those different cultures work with one another, have butted up against one another so that future generations have a better idea on how to live with one another in a, in a more human, humane way. Right. So for me, art really is this thing we can look back at and clearly see. We can use it as a guide. We can use it um, as something to rebel or, or, or push against for the things that need to be. So it's really important for us to better understand who we are. Yeah. Yeah. It is a record of humanity, the arts. Um, you know, I heard something recently that that I could connect to all this and it, it, I'll, I'll probably butcher it and I can't remember who said it, but um a politics without imagination is suicide. And if we think about artists as contributors to our uh, like very vast and big imaginative, imaginative thing, whether that's the story we tell ourselves or the ideas in our artwork, I mean, it's, it is absolutely vital to a democracy. Well, yeah, I mean, I even put it on more of a human fundamental level. I mean, many anthropologists would say the first truly human invention is storytelling and that that's the thing that allows us to pass generationally accumulated knowledge more quickly is through without having to have lived that experiences ourselves. And that's the foundation of formation of culture. And that in that process that, you know, many people, many in the science world and things believe that creativity and adaptability is the real root for human survival. It's it, that's what we need actually more than food, water, and shelter. It's like, cause if the water runs out, if you're not creative in your problem solving, if you're not adaptable, you're not going to find a new water source. You're not you, going you to survive. survive. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's our, our creativity at, at its core is, is the base of our adaptability, which is how we've survived. And the arts are a way in which we bolster and exercise that muscle of creativity. It's how we create that culture. It's how we learn to survive based on past. And so to eliminate arts and with the capital A and that cultural development, we're handicapping our own ability to adapt and survive as a species. So to deny that creative, natural creative sense and urge within ourselves is, is it's, it's destructive. It's that suicidal element. If you're not imaginative or creative, it's, it's suicidal. Yeah. That's, I'd say 100% accurate to me. Yeah. The arts, culture, humanities, they're absolutely critical for sure. And we need to all support them in, in big and small ways. Um, speaking of culture, do you have any cultural recommendations in terms of things that you would recommend people check out or see, or maybe there's an artwork recently that really moved you? Well, being the father of two young children in pandemic times, my, uh, getting out is pretty limited. So my getting out, it really, you know, is focused on my, my laptop in many ways. Um, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm working on a project. I'm working on a book in collaboration with, uh, Jacqueline Flint who on the catalog resume of prints of William Kentridge produced by the David, David Crute, the David Crute workshop in Johannesburg. So I've, for me, diving into their research on that book has really kind of been a lot of the cultural exposure that I've had. And there's some really interesting things that I've found and kind of been reintroduced to. So maybe it's not brand new, but it's kind of a reminder that seems really relevant. Um, and there's a series of early Kentridge films and I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's, it's one of the early shadow films. 
that he did. And it's really, it's based on Plato's concept of uh, the allegory of the cave, which is that we're all people chained to a wall and there's shadows being projected onto the wall and that's our worldview. And if you take that person from the wall um, and send them out of the cave, that light revelation, that like that, that pain in the revelation. And so much of his work in that time period was coming out of the uh, TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, at the end of the fall of apartheid and how, how South Africa dealt with that as a nation, right? This put, er, put everything out, you know, the perpetrators, those, the victims, everything was, you know, gotten out. And so he really started making work in that time period around that. And how, for me, what was really fascinating about that is how major cultural shifts can create, help an artist become the artist they become. And so, so much of the artists we understand of William Kentridge today and all the work that people love really came out of that time period and looking at that absurd nature of things. And so I feel like it's really resonant with today, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, here we are, that was in, you know, 96 and here we are. And, you know, with, with everything that was going on last summer, it just seemed like such a perfect parallel to highlight the absurd nature of the structure of the world that we live in. Yeah. You know, so when I think the things that, you know, doesn't get spoken about with all with the black lives matter movement and summer protests and things is the absurd nature of the um, the racism in the American system. Yeah. Right. It's, it's absolutely absurd. And so I think sometimes it's nice to go backwards to be present. Yeah, no, that's well said. And I'll just echo that. Kentridge's work is incredible. I love looking at his prints and his animations and, and seeing those connections and his drawings are incredible. I think it's important to, let listeners know where they can find your book. It's available now, right? People can purchase it. Where, where, and and I know you have uh, Zoom talks connected to the book that you do fairly regularly. Uh, can you share a little bit of info about when and where? Sure. If you want a signed copy or a special one that's got a print by myself or by artist Glenn Baldridge, you can go to my website, philsandersprintmaking.com. Um, it's also where you can find the links to what I, ref- it's the Prince and their makers book club series. Uh, the ones that were last spring, there were six episodes and then there's that's another set coming this fall and what those book clubs are diving deeper into things that started from the book. Right. So there's so much information. There's about 20,000 words that didn't make it into the book and a whole lot of images. Um, and so a lot of what I start off with is inviting curators and artists and printers and publishers and collectors into conversations um, that use different print things to springboard out to talk about art and bigger cultural things that are going on and stuff like that. So past guests have been, you know, curators from the Met and artists from all over the U.S. And so the idea is to help people get that in-person, more conversational approach to the things that they may want to know about and to go deeper into things that are historical to hyper contemporary and just kind of nothing off limits, nothing out of bounds when it comes to it. So it's a lot of fun. And so the schedule is up on, on that website as well. And social media, I do a regular postings on Instagram, Phil Sanders studio yeah. on Instagram. So. I'll, I'll link that into the deep color website too. Um, Phil, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, finding time to meet with me and talk more uh, about your book. And it's been really great to catch up. I miss you, man. And, and um, I hope, in the not too distant future, we can be in the same room together. Me too. I've missed. I've missed uh, getting to see all my New York friends now. I'm based in Asheville, North Carolina. So it's. Uh, yeah, it's 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 this has been really wonderful for me too. Appreciate the time.
We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that you can learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.